Okay, so we just finished. Okay. Will that change how I pray? No. <laughs> talk to you afterwards. I'll talk to you afterwards. I'm sorry, just giving you a hard time. Okay. Um, thank. It's been a long journey. A three-hour tour turned into, you know. Um, any any questions on this last stanza? Did I miss any blanks, Lee? I didn't get the very final one. Ah, the very final one. Hold on. Very, do it. I said it. I said it. Give this man a cup of coffee. That's right. Reason. Yeah, yeah. Oh! Excellent. Excellent. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. It's fine. Okay, any any questions about this last stanza? It's hard to get all those P's lined up like that. They teach you that No, no, no. Well, actually, 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 it actually is something we see some of the biblical writers do. James, in Greek, uses a string of alliteration in chapter 3. Um, I wrestle with alliteration. If it lines up well, it's great. When it's too forced, you got to abandon it. I thought I could line this up okay, um, but I definitely would rather be clear than forced. Like when we did premarital, my the, the, the gentleman, the pastor who did Serena's in my premarital, he had three great points for husband, lover, learner, leader. And the advantage of the nice alliteration is 18 years on, I remember it. And then he mangled and cajoled the female one into something that's hardly memorable at all because it's like, what was it? Serena, what is it? Where's Serena? She's not even here. Submissive? Submissive? Uh, yep. Selflessly reverent. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Just give it up, man. Just give it up. Right. Um, so so I, I'm a full believer, that, like, if you, if you can't make it work, just quit. But I thought it worked. But okay, okay, okay. No, there's not. There's not. Um, there's not. Uh, anyway, um, yes. Two A and B. Two A and B. Desire and foundation. Okay. You're right. Don loops. One B one. Insight. Okay. I'm happy to go a whole lot further with the last verse and the shepherding motif, but do, do, I don't want to make too much of this, but do you see, I think really the last two stanzas do do a great job of highlighting the major themes. The penultimate one just being a celebration of the word, and not just the word abstractly, but the word as it affects our emotions, our hopes, our fear, I mean, the word as it aff- related... When a believer is seeing and relating to the word rightly, here's here's what you got. This is how good the word is. And then the last stanza, here's all the prayers of that believer. It's not abstracted. It's not just be happy with the word and shut up. It's both. It's be happy with the word. And then spitfire your prayers and your concerns. Um, I, I thought that was a, a nice way to end the psalm. Any, uh, any other questions or thoughts on this? Don Loops. Wait for the microphone, Don. Our three loyal listeners want to know what you have to say. 
Uh, I think it was Ever last week. Samples class started, man. My 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 listenership's you know halved. Went six, now it's three. Okay, Don. I I think it was last week. Not in the uh, sermon, but in the uh, ABF here, we, yeah. you referenced Jacob uh, being bold in in uh, wrestling the angel, wrestling with God. Uh, here, uh, the psalmist was more. Um, I don't know if you want to say timid, but or less aggressive. Uh, well, oh, I think I think in the one hand it is because he's how many? We didn't look them up because I didn't think there would be time. Each one of these prayers, this is like the seventh or eighth time in this psalm he's asked this. So he is p- persistent. Jacob's boldness, and I, and I think where we can find the boldness is when we need help, when we're crying out for help, when we're crying out for repentance, that God would give grace. Um, that's what I was, I was saying, how like, I can't make myself see glory here. I can't make myself delight in this and be excited about this when I'm not excited. But what can I do? Lord, I believe the only reason I'm not seeing this as beautiful and glorious is because some partial veil or hardening has come over my eyes. So, Lord, open my eyes to behold wondrous things in your word, and I'm not going anywhere to you do. <laughs> like, in that sense, be bold and be persistent and be dogged. Here, there's, there's a... Go to Psalm 2. There's a, there's a, there's a balance between boldness and reverence. Um, in Psalm 2, the princes and kings of the earth are encouraged to rejoice with trembling. And that's kind of the type of balancing act I'm talking about is, um, where is it? It's verse, um, yeah, 11. Serve the king, serve the Lord of fear, rejoice with trembling. Um, and so... We have boldness in access. The boldness being, okay, let me take, use my example of a king. Um, No one wakes a king up in the middle of the night except maybe his four-year-old kid asking for a glass of water, right? Um, And so we have the boldness to come in, but that doesn't mean we come in going, yo, God, what's up? Like, so and no, we wrestle with this because you know you got some of the forms of like say Catholicism or even some of the other views that have this really like trembling and supplicate and there's something to that no doubt, but you got to come in. But there should be a sense in which we're bold to come in, terrified. I don't really belong here, but by faith I'm trusting that Christ has made it so I can come. And we go. The boldness isn't coming before the throne of grace. The boldness isn't some casualness, some um, over familiarity with the one to whom we're boldly coming. It's striking a balance of that. It's Philippians, right? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God, right? So that's the posture we're coming at, even as even as we're like the neighbor knocking and not going anywhere and knocking and saying, hey, hey, I need a loaf of bread. Hey, hey, I've been sleeping in bed. Hey, get up, you know? And that Jesus tells us to pray like that, right? But it's not... It's not brash, and it's not coming to an equal. <laughs> You're boldly knocking on God's door. <laughs> it, it, it is a tough thing to balance, because you can see on the one side the people who so get the reverence and the honor of God, 
which is right, that they then don't dare to come anywhere within a thousand miles and we'll just stay out here, thank you. Like the people when when Moses goes up on the mountain, right? They're like, you go talk to him for us because God is scary. And there's many today who are like, priest, you go talk to God for me because God is scary. Well, that ain't right. And then I've seen people, I was at a thing once where the guy opened prayer, hey God. And like, if that's what you want to do in your prayer closet, I got no judgment for you. Like, if you're going to lead us in corporate prayer, that I, 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 I stumbled over that one. That one, that was. Yeah. So, so I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Don, but that's, it's, no. it, it is a balancing act, yeah. right? Of boldness and Abba Father, and yet serious. Maybe another example might be you can imagine. I'm, I'm thinking go, go to go to First Peter. Um, First Peter balances these two things together. First Peter chapter. See, it's either the end of one or the beginning of two. Hold on. Um, um, Uh, at the end of one. Okay. So here's here's the metaphor I'm going to suggest Peter's making. Imagine there is a powerful king who, at his word, people are put to death. A powerful king who invades foreign nations and they fall. He is a mighty judge and potentate. And imagine he's got a child whom he loves. You could picture one of the advisors of the king coming along to the child and saying, hey, just heads up, your dad is serious business. And most of us deal with your dad as our judge, as our king. You get to call him father. That's awesome. Don't presume upon that. Take it seriously. I think something like that is what's going on here. So, so um, picking it up in verse 14, as obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, so there's the rationale. We, out of the only people in the universe, call the judge of the universe father. Everyone else just deals with him as judge. Everyone else stands before his throne, and he will render verdicts, condemning people to hell. If you call on that person as father, um, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear through the time of your exile. Understand the immense privilege and seriousness of the one you're calling father. The one you're calling father will, will consign to hell all of the unbelieving with a surrounding swarm of angels praising him. And we call him Abba, Father. And, and Peter's like, hey, if, if that's what you're doing, and you got reason to do it, do it with some trembling. Do it with some seriousness. Do it with some sobriety. Because the rest of creation does not have that honor or privilege. Right? That's, that's the balancing act. He is Father. But our Father is a serious person. Uh, Thinking that you you, you use the word balance, uh, if you think of it as a scale uh, or actually not a scale, yeah, uh, the weight is always uh, evenly distributed. If it's if it's balanced, but that doesn't always mean there's the same difference between the fulcrum, yeah, and and the yeah, 
each each end may be closer apart depending on how much weight is on one. So, yeah, no, no, sure, sure. Any more thoughts on that aspect? Oh, Bridget in the front. And a microphone is coming. I'm just killing dead air time. Sorry, Mom. So this kind of gets me thinking of um, with like teaching our kids how to pray. Yeah. Um, because if we are believers, we can call him Abba Father and we are his children. But for unbelieving children, sometimes I struggle with knowing how to um, yeah. represent that well or how they should approach him. No, no. It's it, interesting. I was actually just, I mentioned this this morning with Daniel. And in, when we first had kids, that was something I struggled with is if the gift of the spirit is the means by which we call God father. How then would I teach my children to call God father? If I have no confidence that they're believers. Um, that's, that's a great question. Anyone want to take a swing at that before I try to take a swing at that? Let me state it again. If, if only through God's Holy spirit, are we adopted by which we cry, Abba, Father, when you've got a young child who has no credible profession of faith, on what basis do you teach them to call God Father? Bennett wants to take a swing at this. Microphone. Well, maybe you could teach your kids, like, uh, if you believe in your holy God, that's all that matters, that you can pray to him as much as you want and read in the Bible and, like, pray to him and just, like, that kind of stuff. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Is that cool. crappy? Okay. Yeah. Dawn wants to take a swing in this well. You can pass the mic on to Don. Um, where's the microphone? There you go. Uh, you referenced Acts 17. We'll go back there. Um, verse 29. For much then as we are the offspring of God, he's speaking to uh, a wide group of people saved in. Uh, so we're, 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 we are children of God by creation, but not by, by uh, new, birth. new, crea new right. creation. Right, right. My, my basic way of working through this is I think it's going to be the odd child who at two or three years old doesn't believe whatever their parents tell them. You tell your kids that a large man drives around the, the world in a sleigh in one night and goes down everyone's chimney with presents. They're like, okay. You tell kids there's a fairy that wants to collect your teeth and will give you money for them. They're like, I mean, my kids like trying to pull teeth out because like it's like a, I got another buck here. Hold on, you know they believe you, right? Um, so, so in my experience, all of my kids have been receptive and affirmed gospel truths when I've told it to them. So then I'm trying to model like if if that's your confession and it's yet to be proven, by all means, model also the way we pray. You know, so if I had a three year old who's like, I think that's stupid and was actually hostile to the gospel. Yeah, I probably wouldn't be like, you should you should go call God dad. Um, but that child would be a strange child. Um, no, no, and the human heart and the potential for wickedness is great. But I, uh, 
I think that they, they imitate our faith. We want them to imitate our faith. And so as they imitate our confessions weekly, and it can be genuinely, but as they imitate our professions of faith weekly, imitate our prayer life, imitate our Bible reading. So I got my kids, we do family Bible reading when, when our days organized well enough. We, we, it's the type of thing we plan to do every day, and it happens about half the time. Um, and the kids who can read have Bibles, but my other kids have like books in their lap. They can't read them. But they got them because that's as far as they can follow the pattern. That's as far as they can imitate, right? Because I'm trying to get even the babies. You're going to sit still, quiet sit time, because we're moving towards. You're going to sit still and read the Bible. You can't read the Bible yet. And Eliana and Talitha have got like little. Who knows what their book is? But got a book, you know. But from Zadok on up, they're all reading it, and so they're imitating what we're doing. That that I think that is good. any other any other thoughts on that? No, it's a, it's, a, it's a very interesting question. Jake's just hanging in the back with that microphone, man. <laughs> Taking notes. <laughs> Thank you, Jake. Well, I was thinking uh, theologically, our true and God is referred to as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and so even teaching our children to pray, He is our Heavenly Father, um, is teaching them about the Trinity. Yeah. No, no, no. Ab- absolutely, absolutely. And and our children, our children uh, are always watching and learning. We we are the first people they learn about God from. I mean, the only there's two other answers you can give, right? You can give the answer that all children, until they reach the age of accountability, are reconciled with God, which doesn't really, I don't think, have a whole lot of Bible behind it. Um, There's no, no. And the other option is the, the paedo-baptist option, which is children of believers are born reconciled to God. Um, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't hold to that, but that's a lot of people in the church do. Not this church, but the church. People will see in heaven do. Um, the, the basis of why Presbyterians, Lutherans, Methodists baptize their children, what's called infant baptism, is the belief that the covenant promises in the gospel are to the the believer, and to their children. They're going to really ride Peter's statement in Acts for the promises to you and to your children and all who will fall off and all who are near and all who call upon the name of the Lord. And so just as the sign of the covenant was given to the children of Israelites in the Old Testament, they would say the same thing is done here. So if their answer is, why would you teach your children to pray? Our default, they would say, our default assumption is until our children prove otherwise, that they are children of faith. They are heirs of faith. Um, I, I don't buy that. But, but I'm saying these are the different ways people can answer the question. Um, and so for me, it's I think of my home as a greenhouse. And all, I mean, none of, none of my children repudiate the gospel. And to varying degrees, they make professions of faith that have varying degrees of credibility. One of my daughters gets saved about once a year. And that's great, but the fact that it's happened three times now also adds a certain amount of, we'll see, you know. And I want to encourage, you think about the greenhouse, you're watering. These are plants that would not survive on their own outside of the greenhouse. These are plants that need nurturing, protection. They need training. They might need a pole that you tie the plant to and help give it some some shape. And that's all as it should be, you know. Um, And so as long as my children give some form of confirmation or assent or profession of what they're saying i'll lead them in what goes with that you know um we'll see and and certainly jesus wanting the children not to be kept from him suggests minimally 
and a willingness to work with them where they are. You know, I, mean, I, I think that our children can approach Jesus. We, they did in the Gospels, and Jesus doesn't say, come back when you're smart enough to understand everything. So, so at the minimally, um, we're, we're teaching those patterns. We're, we're teaching them how to, how to go through those things. Yeah, Jeremy. Uh, maybe final thought on calling God Father. Um, when Jesus teaches how to pray, I don't know. Maybe he's only speaking to the believers in the audience. Mm. Uh, and and certainly, if you're in a non-believer, what exactly are you? What exactly is your prayer? Yeah. But to some degree, when our children are trying to mimic. Jesus in the Bible, and he says, this is how you should pray, our Father who art in heaven. Yeah, I think that gives them the license to do so. Okay. Yeah, I think in the instance you're talking about, it's just the disciples. I think, isn't that where they come to him and they say, John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray, teach us how to pray? So I think it, if you wanted to argue, it does seem pretty exclusive to the disciples. But, you know, Paul in Acts saying that... There's one sense in which God is all of our fathers. There's another sense in which he is uniquely the father of believers. But certainly there is biblical truth to the father of all, the father of all spirits. There's one from, what's Paul saying in Ephesians 3, for this reason I bow my knee between the father from every family in heaven and earth is named, including Muslim families, including atheist families. He's the father of fathers. He's the all father. Now we're getting into Odin, sorry. Okay. Um, right. Sorry. That was a, that was a sidestep. Anyway, back to here. Okay. Okay. Uh, yes. Lee. And mine is just it's nothing too deep, but when yeah. uh, Jesus is talking to Peter and he says, feed my lambs, then he also says, feed my sheep. So that to me, I see that there's a different differentiation between age and maturity yeah. and that be gentle with the little ones. That's a, you actually, sorry, just to let you know, that's a tough passage. And I don't even know what I think about that one. I got I could probably, I probably, no, 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 pause, 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 pause. No, 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 no. What's, what's tough is he, he switches between three sets of words. He uses different words for feed, different words for sheep, and different words for love. And the question is, does John have significant meaning with each shift? So definitely there are people who are like, do you love me? Do you sort of like love me? Do you really love me? And uh, that's one take. The other, and then sheeps and lambs and feed and I forget what the other word translated for feed is, but no, that's First John two, I think. Um, no, it's at the end of John. He's restoring Peter. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. So the question is, and I don't know yet, but since I'm going into John after Habakkuk, I'll have to know in about three years. I got time. I got plenty of time. Um, is is what significance does John intend by that? And and one of the questions would be okay. How often does John use synonyms? Does John not use synonyms much? That'd be part of it. But I don't know. You could be right. I'm not disagreeing. With you. I'm just saying. Oh, interestingly, as my mind's already sort of in John, as you could tell by this morning, man, I love John nine and ten, and I love Ezekiel thirty four. Oh, um, yeah. So, thank you. Okay. Other thoughts or questions on anything here, Lucas? What you got? Yeah. As a father loved me, so I love you. Abide in my love. Yeah. Amen. Thank you. Oh, Serena in the back. 
I'm nervous. Not to beat a dead horse, but um, a lot of times it's the non... I don't know why you shouldn't beat a dead horse. It's not like it feels it. (laughs) I'm just tenderizing it before we eat it? It gives you some cathartic and makes you feel a little better. (laughs) Anyway, my comment was that most of the time when they're little anyway, you're praying for them. Yeah. So you're modeling it, and I've even had Talitha. Well, almost, almost all my kids want me to pray for them. They don't want right. to pray. You want they, to talk to God? No. It's like it's like coming to Sinai. No, no. I'm telling you, like it's like, do you want to pray? They're scared. They get. I mean, hopefully they've gotten. God is serious business, and He's compassionate. And he's kind, but He's serious business. Nine out of ten times, my little kids want me to pray for them. Right. Which even if then, if you're if you're you concerned about, can you if you're pray con- for me? If you're concerned about having your children call God a name that they're not actually related to, just pray for them using the correct name and you've solved that problem. Yeah, sure. Oh, back to Bridget. I did not see this tangent coming. This is cool. Oh, no, no, no. We're good. We're good. Hey, you got to scratch for people itch. This is fine. Um, well, I'm thinking mealtime prayers. That's like a big one where it's like the same prayer every night. Mm. And it's like teaching that reverence for even if they're not saying father i don't know teaching the reverence of like okay let's i don't know that's something no no and we've had to deal with that with our kids because very quickly our kids when they ask to pray realize they get attention and this will shock you but some kids like attention <laughs> and so for a little while there's a peer like daddy can i pray for you and they get to them and the kid has nothing to say no you Serena, you know what i'm talking about but daddy can i pray sure zadik you can pray okay uh, uh, I know, and we, there's a gentle rebuke. Like, whoa, that's a serious business. You want to talk to God? I, I'd appre- you need to have something to say. You need to have given it some thought. You're not ready, so someone else is going to pray. Okay. And, I, and I, for him, that seemed appropriate. We don't want to crush his spirit, but this isn't just about give me the mic. You know, this is, you want to actually talk to God. Um, and so if I catch flippancy from them, there's a gentle, like, nah. You're going you're to have a certain amount. Of, but it's again, we're back to teaching, you know, in a way that hopefully doesn't crush their spirits. Any other question? Donna. I just oh, no, no, no. Mic- microphone. Mic- it's microphone. hard to believe Zadig can't come up with a word because he talks all the time at Iwanis. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, he, he can. No, he can. The point was, in the, my instance, at least in the one instance where I'm talking about, he was so intent on beating the other kids and being because. Yeah. That, that his mind was focused on, give me the ball, give me the ball. That when he got the ball, he was like, huh? <laughs> right. It, um, is, it is almost frightening how much they learn from, say, the way you were talking, the way, they, the way you pray, right? And how they mimic that. Because the other day, again, it was the pre-meal prayer, and I gave a pre-meal prayer that was maybe two full sentences, and my five-year-old daughter looked at me and informed me, well, that was rather short. And I was like... <laughs> Out of the mouths of I babes. Know, right? <laughs> and it was because in her experience, pre-meal prayers are longer, you know, so whatever you model, they're picking up on that. And it's very, um, yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Any other, oh, Don loops. Don is in the middle and the middle. Uh, the last verse where he talks about being a, a lost sheep, but he still loves uh, God's, don't, doesn't forget God's commandments. Uh, uh, when you do the laundry, the more light you have, 
the more dirt you see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think most of us have far too little uh, respect for our own ignorance and stupidity, and uh, we need to to take you know, have greater respect for, yeah. for that. Ignorance no, is just a, a it's a matter of being finite. We're not we don't know it all. Yeah. Um, now let me take that metaphor and go further with it. My, John Street, my old pastor, said the sanctification is like falling into a bog. And you get out of the bog, and you're covered head to toe in mud, and you're trying to walk out of the swamp into the, and there's a, there's a street light half a mile that way. And the closer you get, you initially you see the big clumps of mud and filth, and you brush them off. And then you get a little closer, and a little more light shines on you, like, oh, there's some mud over. And the closer you get to the light, the more mud and dirt and filth you see on you. And in many respects, that's the Christian life. So yeah, you get you get you become a believer, and some of the big, obvious, life-dominating, ruling sins. You're like, oh yeah, I guess I need to stop doing meth. You know, I'm not trying to be, yeah, but it's the obvious things, right? But like, you know, 20 years on, it's like, man, why do I still care so much what people think about me? Why do I so much want approval? Why why am I so resentful of it? Why can't I be more patient? Why you know, and. You're seeing other things. So it's so like right off the bat with me, some of the big obvious things, like, boom, boom, you know. But, yeah, the, the, the more I go on, the more it's, it's clear. In the same way that God, I think, shows us a new thing in his word, he'll, he'll reveal an area in us that you thought was fine, and no, no, it's not. And then you'll work on it by his grace, you'll grow. And, oh, and here's another place. He's constantly taking that light and saying, okay, clean over. It's kind of like with a child. Okay, wash under your chin. Okay. Behind your ears. <laughs> okay. I, it's just, it's a never-ending process. What? Are we taking a shower, Jeremy? No. No. We are using a metaphor. Okay. Any other questions on that? Uh, I think Paul modeled that. And if you look at his, how he refers to himself chronologically, um, yeah. you know, as he grows in grace, he, he begins, you know, I, I'm the least of the apostles, and I, I'm... Uh, he ends with a double, right. he, he actually invents, it's bad grammar. It's, he's, I'm the worstest. As, as bad grammar in English as that is, having a double superlative ending, worstest, he, he does the same thing with Greek. He takes a double, um, he takes a double, because you got like great, greater, greatest. You got a three-pole progression. Greatestest. I'm the worstest of sinners. Um, to highlight the point, no, that's that's in Second Timothy, his last letter. Yes, is that where you're going? Worstest, the middle step. I'm, I I know there's a middle step, and I like you cannot remember it. So, I'm the oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Okay. So let's round the corner onto the shepherding picture. Um, and, and like I said, this, the last verse of Psalm 119 really helps me because I admit, as I've been reading it and rereading it for the last year, it is really intimidating. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's tempting to think whoever wrote this is so high up in the clouds in their thinking that I can't relate at times. Um, and that last verse is like, nope. 
And the danger with the last verse is to use that to try to nullify everything else that came before. All of that high-sounding prose, and I delight and I glory, he's just a lost sheep. The reality is, this is a psalm for everybody. You never stop being a lost sheep, in a sense. And you also never stop needing to be a person delighting in desiring, wanting to grow and learning God's word. Um, and, and so the last verse to me makes it, in a, the whole psalm, inescapable, because I can so resonate with that last verse. Okay, well, then you better resonate, start growing and you're resonating with the rest of it. You know, that makes, makes sense. Um, can you think of any other passages in the Bible where God is spoken of as a shepherd? There are a few. Yes. David is a shepherd. Yes. Yes. Others. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Yeah. Any others? John 10, 27. My sheep are my voice. What else? All this. I'm, I'm repeating so the people driving to work, the person driving to work can, uh, can hear. There are more. Um, what? They had a flock, yes. But using Joseph, go to, go to Psalm 77. Little subtle hints. The, the, the pastoral, if you remember, why did the Egyptians despise the Israelites? Because they tended cattle, and the Egyptians thought that was just undignified and nasty. That's why they got the land of Goshen, and the Egyptians, it's a nice cultural stereotype here, the Egyptians have nothing to do with that. It's a true cultural stereotype. Presumably, but but they, they just, they, it was one of the jobs that you, you dignify. Psalm 77. Um... But look, look at uh, just just little mentions of this. That the shepherding, I mean, there are different metaphors in Scripture for how God deals with us. And the one of the shepherd and the flock is rich and deep. Um, so in Psalm 77, the psalmist considers the exodus. Um, and uh, pick it up in verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. Skies gave forth thunder, and arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Oh, there's a little shepherding motif shows up there. Um... And so the, the shepherding picture is broad and rich, even if Psalm 23 and Ezekiel 34, in my mind, are probably the two strongest. That go- Zechari- Zechariah, that's yet Lee. Someone's been paying attention. Yes. Although I want to go back to Ezekiel 34. Mitchell pointed something out for me that I want to highlight because we could have read the whole chapter. I, I just, Ezekiel 34 gets gets. Gets me excited. Um, 
And don't miss the I, I, myself language. It's absolutely emphatic. Um, so Ezekiel 34, um, ver- starting in verse 15. And what's going to happen in 15 and 16 is all the faults of the false shepherds in verse 4 get answered by God doing them, right? So in verse 4, you have not list of things. Here, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. That prediction, by the way, what you said in Zechariah, where he comes, the good shepherd comes, and he fights the false shepherds, right there. As for my flock, behold... As for, my, as for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of the pasture and to drink with clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with their feet and drink what you've muddied with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, between because you push with the side and shoulder and thrust with all the weak, all the weak with your horns, till you have scattered them abroad, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between the sheep and sheep, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. And he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken." So I thought God said he, I, I myself will shepherd them. So is it I, I myself, or is it David? Bingo. So even here, you have implicit deity of Christ. Because the text, I mean, don't miss the emphasis in like, say, verse 11. I, I myself. Verse 15, I myself. Um, Verse 20, I myself. God is claiming firsthand I. I myself, not some third party. I'm going to do this. And David's going to do it. Yeah. This would be about the time of the, Bab- this would be at the time of the Babylonian exile, about 400 years, I think, after David, roughly. Uh, so David is not alive on the scene. No, no, no. It's clearly David's not alive on the scene. Um, so... When Jesus shows up in John 10, I, I remember this first click, like his anger at the Pharisees. I mean, you, you go, go with me to John 10. John 10 is the worst chapter division in the Bible. It should not be there. It's awful. No, it's terrible. Um, it, it breaks the red letters right up. Jesus is still speaking. And it's like chapter division. And I think the reason they do that is... I think the reason they do that is because they want to get the two shepherd discourses in one chapter. But you'll notice where the chapter division should be, absolutely should be, is after 21. 1021 should be the conclusion of chapter 9. Because, look how 22 picks up. At the time the Feast of Dedication took place, it was a totally new occasion, totally new event, Right? And look at the end of chapter, look at, look at verses 19 to 20, when he's done with his first shepherd discourse. 
There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the... Hey, guess what we just heard the end of? The man born blind story. So plopping a chapter division right down in the middle of it, not helpful. It, my point, you can break the chapters however you want. My point is, it's one narrative chunk. All of 9 through 10, 21 is clearly one chunk, one story. And suggesting 10 something different is missing the mark. And so in John's, and again, you got me riled up. I'm not, you don't have it. I am riled up because I've been thinking a lot about John. And what happens is starting in John chapter 3 and moving forward, a number of times, Jesus, John likes to have Jesus give these discourses. There's virtually no parables in John. Um, there's only about seven or eight miracles in John. And what you get are discourses. And where Jesus even does a miracle, they usually set up Jesus talking. So in John chapter 5, he heals the man by the pool. And that sets up the discourse, what I and the Father are one. In John 6, he feeds the 5,000, which sets up the I am the bread of life discourse. In John 9, he heals the man born blind, which sets up the I'm the Good Shepherd discourse. Now, the difference is, in between healing the man born blind and the I'm the Good Shepherd discourse, we got a new piece, which is, let's see how the Pharisees handle this guy. And what you see is the shepherds eating and destroying the flock. And you see in the, the, uh, the man born blind, his as he's thinking, he's drawing conclusions and his faith is growing and theirs is coming down. So real fast, just reading through this. Um, I just love this passage, sorry. Um, so they, they come to him, um, verse 8, neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. They kept saying, and he kept saying, I'm the man. <laughs> I'm the man. So they said to him, then how are your eyes opened? And notice how he first references Jesus. The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. The Pharisees in response in verse 16, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. So opening statements of the man born blind, the man called Jesus. Opening statements of the Pharisees, he's not from God. So then in verse 17, the man steps up his claim. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? He said he is a prophet. So the man born blind goes from the man called Jesus to he is a prophet. Um, the Jews did not believe him that he had been blind. So like this is a fake. Um, so they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who has been born blind? How then does he see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. They asked him, ask him, he is of age. Thanks, mom and dad. No, we can talk after, no, we can talk after, I got to finish reading this. So they, the parents say, talk, ask him, well, and they're clearly because they're intimidated by the Pharisees because what the Pharisees are about to do. These, these are the shepherds of Israel. A man who's been living lifelong blind is healed. Are they excited? Are they happy? Are they rejoicing? Who did it and how? And what do you say about him? And the man is, un instead of being crumpled and his faith shrinking, he's getting bolder. 
Verse 24, so the second time they called the man who'd been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. So first, their statements of Jesus is he's not from God, now he's a sinner. The man's response, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered him, I have told you already, and you still will not listen. Why do you want to hear again? Is it because you want to become his disciples? Now he's getting a little sassy. (laughs) And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses, and we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man's getting even bolder. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that someone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Interestingly, this is one miracle God never had occur prior to this. Elijah never opened the eyes of people. Elijah raised someone from the dead. I mean, in other words, many of Jesus' miracles fall in the prophetic pattern. And so it's it's interesting that Elijah, in just in Luke, when people are like, could this be Elijah? Is this a prophet like Elijah? Elijah goes to the Syrophoenician woman. Her son dies. He leans over the body, prays, and the son comes back to life. Jesus encounters a widow's son on a funeral bier being carried, and he prays and raises her up. And people are meant to say, hey, that's kind of like Elijah. Here's a unique miracle, an unprecedented, sorry. Here's an unprecedented miracle. And the man is sharp enough to pick up on that. Um, We know that God does not listen to sinners, verse 31. If anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He starts with the man called Jesus. Then the man who's a prophet. And now this man is from God. And then the Pharisees answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Like I said, as far as we can tell, John invented the word desynagogued, which means being kicked out of the entire social life of the community, right? I mean, this would be like modern day Islam getting kicked out of the mosque. And so you want to see a vivid picture of the would-be shepherds devouring and trampling and mistreating the sheep. And then I love this. Jesus heard they'd cast him out. What's the good shepherd do? He goes and he finds him. And he finishes bringing this man's journey to faith to faith. Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. That must have been sweet. You're looking at him. It is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And then I get Jesus being angry and turning on the Pharisees. <laughs> it is for judgment that I came into this world. And well, then the Pharisees were like, you're talking about us? You dang right I'm talking about you too. Let me give you, a piece. you know, and he goes into them. Um, and so, I, yeah, the connection between Ezekiel 34 and God's passionate heart, both passionate in his tenderness. I mean, simultaneously, great tenderness and concern and compassion. He seeks out this one little sheep. And then the fury at these false shepherds and these false teachers and their manhandling of this poor little guy. Yeah, that's Ezekiel 34. That's the God of the Old Testament I know. I just, I love the sandwiching of these 
two texts. We're at dawn. Okay, we can talk afterwards. We're at time, people. Godspeed. Good day. God bless. Thank you.